As they go, pray with me if you would. Father, we are rejoicing to be able to gather like this, to be able to worship you together in a unique way that you've called us to worship you together as a church family. Have this be a good time where we are equipped and challenged, convicted if necessary. And have this be a time where Christ is exalted and lives are transformed so that they too can further exalt Christ. As the kids go, Lord, may their teachers be faithful in teaching them to look to Christ and not anywhere else for hope, for righteousness, for forgiveness and redemption. And may the same be true for us as adults. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus says, and this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. But can we trust Him? Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But can we trust Him? Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But can we trust Him? And hopefully you're thinking in your mind, Of course we can trust Him. Why are you even asking that rhetorical question, Pat? The reason I'm asking that rhetorical question is because if God has ever made a promise and not kept it, then why should we trust any of the promises He has made, including those major promises I just read? And that's what takes us this morning to Romans chapter 11. I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 11. Romans 11 is about the trustworthiness of God. That God, when He makes promises, keeps His promises. And we need Him to be such a God, lest we not be able to trust Him for any of His promises. Again, if God makes promises and doesn't keep them... If God makes one promise and doesn't keep it, who's to say that He's going to keep any of them? And that's really what the issue is in Romans chapter 11. Romans 11, 1 to 10, is a section of Scripture about the trustworthiness of God. Now, you might be thinking, Pat, I think Romans 11 is about Israel. And you would be right. But ultimately, Romans 11 is about the trustworthiness of God. And if you're prone to believe people who are smarter than I am, which I would be prone to do, I'll quote John Piper. In his book on Romans 9 and following, he says this, What is at stake ultimately in these chapters is not the fate of Israel. I was so happy to find this quote. All right. Great minds think alike. (laughs) What is at stake ultimately in these chapters is not the fate of Israel. Ultimately, God's own trustworthiness, he even used the word, is at stake. And if God's word of promise cannot be trusted to stand forever, then all our faith is in vain. End of quotation. Ultimately, Romans 11, Romans 9, 10, and 11 is about the trustworthiness of God. You see, God has made promises to the nation of Israel. And the question is, based upon the fact that Israel, by and large, has rejected Jesus as Messiah, as Savior, as anointed King. Has God failed? 
Has God failed to be able to save them? And that's the big question. Just to remind you how Romans works, Romans is a book about the gospel. There's no debating that. It's, a, it's the best book on the gospel I can think of other than the gospels themselves. If you want to interpret any of the four gospels, the best way to interpret really the significance of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, would be to go to Romans. It gives you the, the, the significance and the meaning and it helps us to understand what Christ did and the value of what Christ accomplished. Romans 1 to 8 makes that as clear as possible. And then all of a sudden you have Romans 9, 10, and 11 that seem out of place. And then Romans 12 to the end of the book is all about how now that you've trusted in Christ and you're a Christian, your life should look different as you're worshiping Christ because of the gospel, because of His perfect life, because of His perfect death, because of His perfect resurrection, because you're trusting in Him for salvation, live differently. Romans 9, 10, and 11 almost don't, almost seem to not belong. The reason they're in our Bibles is to make sure we understand that God keeps His promises. Remember Romans chapter 8 ends, Romans 8 is so awesome about God making these great promises, and Romans chapter 8 ends on this great climactic high point, this worship about our great salvation. It talks about how, how nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it's just ringing and it's, it's profound and it's worshipful. You can trust God for His promise to save you to the very end. And we love that chapter as Christians. And writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the Apostle Paul sees fit to take three chapters. Three chapters to explain what I call the Israel question. Because if God made promises to save Israel, and either A, couldn't, or B, changed his mind and wouldn't, then why would we trust God for Romans 8? So this is probably a bigger deal than we think it is. Three chapters? In a book about the gospel? And he goes off on a tangent about Israel? It helps us to understand that God most certainly, absolutely, without question, without wavering, even though by and large most Jews have rejected Jesus as Messiah from the time he was resurrected till now, God most certainly can and will and does, if I need to put it that way, keep, keeps His promises. So, you might think, oh, we're, going, we're studying Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's about Israel. It's not relevant. Well, we have a special repenting class for you. Um, and maybe I need to attend it some myself. This is all about, let me put it this way making sure that we understand that Romans 8 and the God of Romans 8 actually can be trusted. That's what it's about. And so I'm thrilled we can look at it. What we'll look at in these first 10 verses of Romans 11 would be five proofs that highlight the trustworthiness of God. Five proofs that highlight the trustworthiness of God. And we'll begin looking at them once we look at the first verse. Look there with me, if you would, at verse 1. The Apostle Paul starts things off, sets the stage by asking this leading question. I ask then, has God rejected His people? That's a good question. 
That's a fair question, certainly on the, on, the, on the first level of things. Because remember what we saw last time, chapter 10, verse 16? But they have, talking about Israel, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, which is a, a huge understatement given the context. They've not all obeyed the gospel, i.e., most of them have not. And then he gives a couple of illustrations from Isaiah and Moses. But then look at verse 21 of chapter 10. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands, that is God, to a disobedient and contrary people. So you notice in verse 16, they're supposed to obey the gospel. In verse 21, they're disobedient. No doubt it is disobedient to the gospel. And not only that, they're contrary people. It comes from a word that means to argue against. God says, here is my son. Here is Messiah, Mashiach. The anointed Savior. The one I promised. Believe in Him for righteousness. Trust in Him for righteousness. And Israel, by and large, stiff-arms God to the point where they say, no, and they're contrary. Literally, they argue with God about who Jesus really is. That's, that's pretty intense. That's pretty strong. And so when he asks in chapter 11, verse 1, has God rejected His people? Well, I mean, that would be a pretty obvious question to be asking. And what they've rejected him for, they've rejected him, not him, them, would be for righteousness. Chapter 10, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They know, or let me put it this way, they need righteousness as we all do because God requires righteousness, perfection. God provides righteousness through his son and his perfect work. But instead of trusting in Christ, clinging to Christ for righteousness, they seek to establish their own righteousness. Chapter 10, verses 1, 2, and 3. They fail to see what's true about Christ. Chapter 10, verse 4. Christ is the end. He's the culmination. He's the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And they don't believe. And so it's no wonder that Paul says, all right, is it that God has rejected His people? Because they're not believing in Him, so therefore He's not saving them. But He promised to save them. But there's another side of the story. And that is these proofs that answer that question in the negative. The first proof that highlights the trustworthiness of God that relates to Israel and to us would be, number one, a dogmatic proof. A dogmatic proof. What does it mean to be dogmatic? Usually it's in a negative light. Someone who's a dogmatic is what? They're inflexible. They're, they're bold, maybe overly bold. They're, 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 they're not open to compromise. They just say, this is how it is. And Paul starts off with a dogmatic proof. He's not open to debate. This isn't open for discussion. There's no qualification. No holds barred. Look what he says in response to the question in verse 1. He says, by no means... Okay, here's the question. Let me give you a dogmatic answer without qualifier. No! Okay, he uses that, those two strong Greek words that are the strongest negative, me genoita. No, 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 never is the idea. And we've seen this multiple times in Romans. Probably the most notable that sticks out in my mind is Romans chapter 6. Remember when Paul, having talked about grace and how it's only by grace and only through faith and only in Christ, then he knows somebody's going to say, well, does that mean we should just sin more? 
to make grace increase more? And he says, Meganoita, no, never, not in a million lifetimes. Has God rejected his people? He said he was going to save them through Messiah, Jesus. And Messiah Jesus came and by and large, they rejected him. So has God rejected Israel? And with all of the force that he can possibly muster in the Greek language, he says, don't even think about it. Why? Because of my apostolic dogmatism. (laughs) First and foremost, because I say, read chapter 1, verse 1. He's an apostle. I think it's probably in chapter 1, verse 1. And so let's keep that in mind. It is unthinkable. It, It shouldn't even enter our minds that that's the point. Now, he's going to say in verse 2, God has not rejected his people, but he's not even to that yet. Before we move on, I, I appreciated the insight from James Montgomery Boyce on this. He says this, Paul was steeped in the Old Testament. You want to know why he, he says meganoita? He was steeped in the Old Testament, Boyce observes, so we can well understand his, here's why I like the quote, horrified an extreme reaction to the suggestion that God might somehow break His promises to Israel and cast His people off. Discipline, he says, yes. A remnant in times like this, of course. But cast Israel off? Abandon the covenant? Break the promises? How could God do that and still remain God? If that happened, truth, honor, and righteousness, and justice would be torn from the deity, and God would no longer be God. Even look at those verses and and, and see that kind of emphasis. If you put your finger on verse 1 and and just have it jump out at you, perhaps, has God rejected His people? One, two, three, four, five. Those five, five words, in one sense, are are ludicrous words. They're nonsensical. It's a nonsensical question. Has God rejected His people? That wouldn't even make any sense. Because that would be God rejecting Himself because they're His people. That makes no sense whatsoever. So no wonder He says, No! I don't know how to get close to illustrating this because we're talking about God and His love for His own people. The closest thing I could come to was when my two-year-old son, Owen, has me carry him down the stairs. It's happening less and less, which is sad and good. Becoming more and more independent. But a lot of times early in the morning, like on a Monday morning, if I'm home and off and he doesn't want to walk down the stairs, he wants me to carry him. And I love it. And so, he says, carry you, carry you. And he means carry me. So he looks at me and I hold him like this. We're facing each other and He's kind of scared because we have a big open kind of stairway. And it's high. I I would be scared too, maybe. And he holds on so tight, squeezes. And pretty much all the time, without exception, I like to whisper to him and say, It's okay, Owen. Daddy loves you. You're my son. I would never drop you. I love to say it. He's my son. I love it. I love that moment. I will always remember that moment. He's my son. It's unthinkable for me to drop him. He is as safe as he could possibly be, lest God be the one carrying him. 
It's not perfect. But God is saying, I will never reject Israel because they're my people. I will never drop them. It's unthinkable because they belong to me. They're mine. Me genoita. He will never drop them. Now before we move on to number two, remember this is significant not because we just want to learn more Israelology. This is significant because of where it is in Romans. Because if God will drop His people, then you ought not be believing Romans 8. That's why it's in the book. And you want to believe Romans 8. It's here to help us understand that God is trustworthy. That He is a God who keeps His promises. And so let's have this be about Israelology, but let's have this be about us learning too. Okay, a second proof will be a quick one, and that would be a proof that we might call personal proof. Number two, also in verse 1, teaching us about the trustworthiness of God. Look there at verse 1 where it says, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. It's understandable what he's getting at, right? First he says, no, apostolic authority. And then he says, last time I checked, I'm a Jew. And last time I checked, I believe in Messiah. I believe in Him for righteousness. I'm a Christian. I'm a Jew. And he could say, and not only that, joining me were 3,000 Jews that were saved at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and he could start naming other Jews who were converted. I like it that he doesn't do it. He could do that. He just names himself. If there is one Jew who's saved by believing in Mashiach, Jesus as Savior, the argument doesn't work that says God has failed to save the Jews. I think that's what he's getting at. Personal testimony. Don't say that the Jews have rejected Jesus. I am one. In fact, I know what it means to reject Jesus. I've I've been there and done that. We can move on from there. But this personal testimony gives evidence that God, God has not rejected Israel. Look right there. There's a Jew who got saved. Now let's move on to number three, a third proof that highlights the trustworthiness of God as it relates to Israel and then to us. Theological proof, a theological proof. Look at verse 2 then with me if you would. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. And now we just got into the theological side of argumentation. Whom He foreknew, that is oozing with, that is overflowing with, that, that is weighty and theological. Now remember, we learned about God's foreknowledge in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Those whom He foreknew. And then it just goes all the way to the end of glorification. And when God foreknows someone, they most certainly, absolutely, no matter what, will be saved. It seems based upon context. Well, I know Romans 8 is clearly talking about the individual. And here it seems, given the context in chapter 11, He's talking about corporate, bigger picture. Now, I don't want to re, rehash everything and re, regurgitate everything. You could 
listen to the audio of Romans chapter 8, 29. It's a multiple-part series. But just, just so we're clear on what he's getting at with theological proof, to fore, when God foreknows, we never see it in the Bible, that Greek word being used for God foreknowing events or God foreknowing circumstances, God foreknowing decisions. Now that's true. God can look ahead and see what's going to happen. That's true. That's not how foreknow is used. Even in our context here, it's always used in context of foreknowing people. It's personal. It's not, and God foresaw this. He can foresaw. <laughs> he can foresee. But that's not with how this word is used. He foresees people. That's why some have suggested that a good way to translate this and catch the idea is he foreloved. He, he sets his love on someone ahead of time. Think about Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 when he talks about on that great and awful judgment day when he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And then he says, I never knew you. Well, Jesus most certainly foresaw that event because He's talking about it before He even went to the cross and it's talking about on Judgment Day. But He didn't foreknow them, meaning there was no... He didn't know them. It doesn't say foreknow. He didn't, there's no knowing them. There's no close love relationship. He didn't set His love upon them. I mention all of this because when we're dealing with Israel here, it most certainly says God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Obviously, the Apostle Paul is expecting us to know what foreknew means because we learned about it in chapter 8. God foreloved. God foreknew intimately Israel. And if that is the case, it's impossible to reverse that. Read Romans 8, 29 and 30. Applied to the individual. When God foreknows or foreloves, it's a done deal. It's carried to the very end. Very logical, theological kind of argument. In Amos chapter 3, if you want an Old Testament example, verse 1, it says, Hear the word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought out of the land of Egypt. And then verse 2 says of Amos 3, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now that's not saying that God is somehow incapable of knowing anything about other families of the earth. But only Israel has He set His unique love upon. So it's irrational, unthinkable, illogical to conclude that God is going to reverse His foreloving. Wouldn't make any sense. Why is that important to us in our study of Israelology? Because it's in the context of our being able to trust this God. When God foreknows, it's a done deal. Remember that. God foreknew Israel. For him to unwind that or to reverse that would be unthinkable. And so Romans 8 and Romans 9, or excuse me, Romans 11 in our text feed each other, really. Let's move to a fourth proof that highlights the trustworthiness of God as it relates to Israel and by implication to us. 
that really makes Romans 8 trustworthy and true, God trustworthy and true. Number four, a historical proof. He gives a historical proof, the proof of Elijah. Look at verse 2 where it goes on to say, but you, uh, excuse me, verse 2 says, do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? Just to pause for a second, I I, kind of cringe and I read verses like that. I don't know about you. You know, because you think, um, I guess I don't know. (laughs) Some of you do. Wish I would have been raised in a Christian home and could have gone to Sunday school that actually taught the Bible, but that's another conversation. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? It also kind of burns a little bit because remember how Jesus would talk to the religious leaders. Have you not read? So actually, you can be aware of the story or the account, but you're not thinking logically, you're not thinking biblically, and Jesus just stung the Pharisees because they did know the passages. They could have found them in their Bibles without tabs. Right? Have you not read? And so here, Paul is going to argue for the trustworthiness of God based upon a historical example. Let me just remind you of Elijah. Verse 2 again. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? He's referring to 1 Kings chapter 19. How he appeals to God against Israel. So, I won't assume anything and I'll quickly explain the account. Some of you know it. But, but he's saying, just, just think back to what happened to Elijah. When, when Elijah was appealing to God against Israel. Read it today. It's fascinating. It's even humorous and sickening at the same time. So you've got King Ahab. You've got Jezebel. And all of this nasty, rank idolatry. Arguably the worst idolatry ever in the history of Israel, some would say. Baal worship. Just rank in Israel is just sucking it up to the point where Elijah is at the end of his rope. You know, God, you know, kill him, get him, wipe him out. Surely nobody's going to hold it against you if you say, I've had enough, covenant broken. And God, if you're not going to, if you're not going to wipe them out, just kill me now. Had enough. That's the prophet Elijah. Well, That's just the 30,000-foot version. Read it for yourself. But let's look at verse 3. He's going to quote Elijah from 1 Kings 19. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. You know? Get them! Pull the trigger! They deserve it! Nobody's going to say somehow you're bad or untrustworthy. Just just do it. And Paul's appealing to that. Look at verse 4 of Romans 11. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Oh... It would have been too short-sighted. God was well aware and God held those idolaters accountable, no doubt. But Paul's saying, remember what happened in the historical account? Elijah had had enough. 
Wipe them out, God. They deserve it. And God said, no. That's too short-sighted. I actually, as we will see in a moment, I'll use the word now, I have a remnant. I have a remnant. I'm not going to wipe them out. He's always going to have his people. Look at verse 5. It says it right there. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul's saying, I understand that there has been large, massive rejection of Christ. I understand how horrific it is. But make no mistake about it. God is still committed. Just remember what happened with Elijah. There's a remnant. Then if you even recall, chapter 9 said in verse 27, there's a remnant of them that will be saved. We know remnants. Remnants are you know, typically leftovers. They're the small pieces at the carpet store or the fabric store that you can buy cheaply. Well, he doesn't use it exactly like that, but he's saying, you know what? I'm a covenant-keeping God, and I don't have to say failure, abort, because there's a remnant. Reminds me of the wording in Romans 9, 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So what he's calling us to do is remember, remember biblical history, remember redemptive history, and remember that even amidst the worst times in the history of Israel, when God wouldn't have been blamed for annihilating the Jews, he says, I, I, I actually have some. I actually have a people amidst the people. And for us, this history is very important because we need a God who keeps His promises to Israel. And I know I'm belaboring the point, but I'm in good company because Paul spends three chapters. You need a God who keeps His promises to Israel because if you don't have such a God, then who's to say He's going to keep His promises to you? Romans 8. Okay, let's wrap up number five. A fifth proof that highlights the trustworthiness of God as it would relate to Israel and then ultimately to us. Let's call it sovereign grace. The sovereign grace proof. Verses 5 to 10. And this is going to be difficult. More difficult for some of you than others if you're new to this and you haven't read the Bible very much. By way of preview, the argument's going to be you can trust God to keep His promises to Israel because, get this, we've seen this in Romans 9 already, it was never God's intent to save all of them down to every single individual. Sovereign grace is another way of saying God's elective purposes. He's going to talk in these verses about predestination, which he talked about on an individual level in Romans chapter 8. And that might rock your mind. 
but I won't apologize for it. As a matter of fact, you need a God who does this. Based upon the argument of the book of Romans. Because if God is trying desperately to save every single Jew who ever lived, and that's His purpose, He has failed. And you can't trust Him. Sounds harsh maybe. But that's what we're going to see unpacked for us. God was never, as I said in Romans chapter 9, never trying to be a universalist and finding Himself an utter failure. And by the way, we've already taken a class for college credit on this subject. It's called Romans 9. Okay, This is just a refresher course. And so if you've got to think through some of these issues, you can go back and retake that class. Maybe you can audit it um, or take it by arrangement. Just get the audio uh, on iTunes or something. But he's back to that argument again. This argument is in verse 5. Look there. We already looked at the beginning. But then he says, a remnant chosen by grace. Chosen. That's, a, that's election predestination kind of terminology. Where did the remnant come from? Well, God, God chose them. Is where they came from. And now he goes off on a little bit of a tangent, which is really fun. I want to preach a whole sermon on this. I'll do it really quick. Ready? Go. All right. <laughs> Not exactly, but look what he says in verse 6. And, and, and grammarians even tell us that we should feel a sense of argumentation. This is an argumentative flair. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But people smarter than I am say that it is. Look at verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. He's off on this tangent. If God chooses by grace, it's not, it's not by works. So get that clear in your mind is what he's saying. Now I think what he means when he says it is no longer on the basis of works, it's not suggesting that it once was. Read Romans 4. Abraham was justified by faith. David is justified by faith. It seems in this context is that what he's doing is he's rebuking and refuting the unbelieving Jews who thought that salvation was by works. Let me show you what I mean. Keep your finger, if you need to, on verse 6, no longer on the basis of works, if it's by grace. Go back to chapter 10, and verse 1 talks about the way the Jews were, were trying to be saved. And In verse 2, uh, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Verse 3 of chapter 10, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, seeking to establish their own, See, that's works terminology. They're, they're ignorant about the righteousness of God, and so they try to establish their own righteousness by, by doing, by trying, by efforting, thinking somehow God is going to accept them for their works. Then it goes on to say they did not submit to God's righteousness. Then verse 4 is just our favorite part. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I think that's what he gets at. You understand verse 6 by understanding Romans 10, 1, 2, 3, and 4. But he's now arguing about grace. You know what? He's saying these unbelieving Jews don't understand that the way to righteousness is through the righteousness of Christ. They're ignorant about how righteous God is and they think somehow they as sinners can earn their way there. This makes no sense at all. And they're rejecting Christ for His righteousness. Then in verse 6 it goes on to say, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. And that's really what I want to preach the tangential sermon on. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight stars in the margin. That's probably a record. 
What great words. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What a great statement. Because He knows a lot of people talk about grace and they use the word grace. But somehow grace is what God gives you because He sees what you do first. He's like, then grace isn't grace. Grace is a reward. And grace by definition is free and unearned and unmerited. They need to understand. The Jews need to understand. It's by grace. And that means it's not of works. Otherwise, don't call it grace anymore. It's all of Christ and all of His righteousness. Which means it's all of grace. Chosen by grace. Verse 5. Now just jump ahead for a second if you would. To the latter part of verse 7 where it says, the elect. Who, by the way, we learned in verse 5 were chosen by grace, right? The elect. Those of you who already talked about who were chosen by grace obtained it. We can just stop there for now. The elect, chosen by grace, obtained it. What did they obtain? They obtained righteousness. And how did they obtain righteousness? They obtained righteousness the only way righteousness comes, which is by faith. What I want you to see is that sovereign grace emphasis. The elect, chosen by grace ones, according to verse 5, the elect in verse 7, obtained it. You see, God keeps His promises. Of the remnant, the elect, they obtained it. God's plan was to have a remnant and from them to get from point A to point B. And guess what happened? It happened. They obtained it. God's saving grace always works. God's sovereign grace always works. God's predestinating purposes, if I want to borrow from Romans 8, always works. So as you're thinking through, can God be trusted... The final component in his argument is an argument of sovereign grace. You can bet your you can you can you can bet your boots it always works. You can know that he's trustworthy. And let me just give you an example. The elect obtained it. That means God is a success. God wasn't trying to save every single one of them who had ever been born, as harsh as you might think that is. If you become God one day and populate your own celestial planet, which means you're a Mormon, which is not actually going to happen, but if you believe that lie, then on your planet where you populate it, then you can have it be different. You can try to be a universalist. But the God who is and who's revealed Himself has revealed Himself to not be a God who tries to save everyone and fails. The elect obtained it. That's the God we're dealing with. He's good and kind and gracious. But to borrow from the movie, He's not tame. He's not the God that we've created according to our own image and our own likeness. But how about this? He can be trusted. Because He always succeeds. Now, Romans 8 is absolutely astounding and amazing because in Romans 8, the feel and the flavor you get, and I've never met anyone who didn't like Romans 8. Well, they might not like 29 and 30, but I've never met 
professing Christians who didn't like at least the gist of Romans 8. That is to say, in the end, it works. It's sure God is successful. But, but behind that is Romans 8, 29, and 30. The reason it works and He's successful and He's trustworthy is because He operates according to sovereign grace. And the elect obtained it. You can count on it. You can trust Him. His plan always works. And so I love Him for this. I don't argue with Him about this. Then the negative side comes. Some of you thought that was negative. It's all positive. It's great. The elect obtained it. Why argue with that? That doesn't make any sense. But let's reread verse 7. Here's the other side of the coin. What then? Israel? Based upon the context, clearly Israel by and large. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Now, what were they seeking? They were seeking righteousness, chapter 10, verse 3. But according to verse 6, they were seeking righteousness by works. So they failed. But then it says the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. That's the hard part of this reality. You know, that's the hard part of sovereign grace. The rest were hardened. What we need to remember is everyone deserves wrath. Everyone deserves judgment. God doesn't owe it to anyone to elect them. That's Romans 1, 2, and 3. He expects us to remember that. And so amongst the whole, He elects some and they obtain it. And the rest, the rest of the sinners, says he hardened. They were hardened. Romans 9.18 says the same thing. Then look at verse 8 with me, if you will. As it is written, quoting Deuteronomy 29.4, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Verse 9 says, and David says, quoting Psalm 69, 22-23, let their table, which is, which is emblematic of feasting and blessing, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Hardship, enslavement, pain, suffering. You see what he says there in verse 9, though? Do you understand the meaning? Let their table, let Israel's table, that which is blessing, that which is good and profitable, feasting, let it become bad. It's the judgment of God. It's the judgment of God upon not all of Israel, but upon some of them consistent with God's saving plan for the elect who obtain it. So here's the idea. Israel's been given so many blessings from God. Larger part of the believing community. God's provisions. You have God's Word. You have Torah. You're around the, the people of God by and large. Table. Blessing. But where that is not responded to by faith, where that is not responded to by, by trusting God and not trying to find your own righteousness, but clinging to His righteousness, God says, 
It works for the negative. The blessings actually turn into agents of hardening. And I'll be the first one, if you want to say, that's harsh, Pastor, I'll be the first one to say, I agree with you. It is. But it's harsh for God to say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And for, by and large, the people of Israel to say, no, we won't. Just give us more blessings. Then the blessings become agents of hardening. That's why Jesus is called the chief cornerstone who became the stumbling block. Couldn't get past Christ. Big picture in all of this is that God is faithful because the elect obtained it but the rest were hardened. God's keeping His word and He's doing His work. It was Martin Luther who said that the the same sun that melts The snow hardens the clay. God gives these great gifts. And there are all different kinds of responses to these great gifts. Big picture here, God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. He's keeping His Word. He's keeping His Word. He's keeping His Word. Because of Romans 11, you can believe Romans 8. God has not dropped the ball. He's in charge and He's in control and things are unfolding according to plan. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You for an opportunity to look at this passage together. There's certainly more for us to learn, more for us to consider. But we are thankful for that overarching picture and that overarching emphasis that You work according to Your sovereign grace and that You keep Your promises, and so we can trust You as those who are believing in Christ for righteousness. Not by works, so that we can have it be about ourselves and boasting, but because of Christ, so that we might boast in Him. Lord, please continue to challenge us. Please continue to drive us back to Your Word, to be like the the Bereans, examining the Scriptures to see whether these things are so. But upon seeing that they're so, God, may, may the truth of Your Word not be used in our lives for hardening. May the truth of Your Word not be used in the lives of our children for hardening. But God, use Your Word to melt and to shape and to draw for the glory of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.